0: Okay, well, officially welcome everybody to our uh, Articles of Religion class. Um, We've had a few weeks off, so we're going to pick back up in Article 20. A bit of a review, Um, the last thing we did was the Article 19 of the Church, where we defined the Church as a congregation of faithful men in the which the pure word of God is preached and the sacraments be duly administered. Um, And all those things that are necessary are are requisite of the same. And then we talked about how the various uh, patriarchies have erred, not only in their living and manner of ceremonies, but also manners of faith. So this article number 20 is of the authority of the church. So it's a really good um, follow up to that. So after defining the church, and especially that idea that the church can and does err. So then what is the church's authority? So this is number 20 page 607 in the 1928 prayer book the church hath power to decree rites or ceremonies and authority in controversies of faith and yet it is not lawful for the church to ordain anything that is contrary to god's word written nor may it so expound one place of scripture that it be repugnant to another wherefore all the church although the church be a witness and keeper of holy writ yet as it ought not to decree anything against the same, so besides the same, ought it not to enforce anything to believe for the necessity of salvation. So in one sense, we're not saying anything here that we haven't said before, especially regarding the scripture's ultimate authority, right? But um, the church does have derivative authority, and, and, and that, is, that is very important. Get my screen so you're not getting that light behind my head um, as much. Anyway, yeah. So the church does have derivative authority. So let's let's uh, first see what what the is not its authority. So it does not have the authority ever to contradict scripture. That's the big thing. Um, nor does it have the authority to expound one place of scripture so that it is contrary to another. So you can't say, well, I'm gonna follow this passage and ignore this passage, it doesn't work that way. Rather, we have to uh, figure out how scripture speaks to scripture. Uh, this is one of those areas where we do find um, in some of some of the, the more liberal ends of the church today Um, They want to dismiss a lot of what St. Paul says on morality, because like, oh, well, Paul was misogynist and Paul was this and Paul was that. He just didn't understand how people really were. And we only want to read the red letters, the letters that Jesus actually said. So if Jesus himself didn't say anything about it, then we're not we don't have to worry about it. Well, that's that's not the way scripture works. Right. Um, You know, if if the scripture is the word of God then what St. Paul says, inspired by the Holy Church, is as much the word of God as the actual quotations of Jesus, the so-called red letters. So that's one thing. We, don't, we, we can't play scripture against each other. Um, and that does require us to do a certain amount of homework, right? Um, so if we do have places of scripture that seem to be in conflict, we need to figure out how to make that work. So um, an example of that might be some of those Old Testament ceremonial or civil issues. You know, we read this law in the Old Testament, we say, well, isn't that the word of God? And the answer is yes. But that seems to contradict something that the New Testament says. Well, one of the things that the church has done is recognize because of what scripture says, and for example, the book of Hebrews and some of what Jesus said, that in a new covenant context, the ceremonial and civil aspects of the law, they have a different purpose in different times. That doesn't mean that God didn't say those things, but it does mean those were for a certain time and a certain people. Does that allow us to do the same thing with the New Testament? Well, maybe in some cases, you know, for example, there's the famous passage in 1 Corinthians where St. Paul Um, basically seems to require women to wear hats in church or some sort of head covering. And almost every scholar recognizes that he's addressing a particular problem in Corinth and a particular cultural um, issue going on in those days. And we can draw proper applications without necessarily having to enforce as a law that, um you know women wear hats or veils or something like that in the church. Does, does that make sense? Um, sometimes that's that can be a little bit more difficult. Um, and so uh, the, the homily on reading of scripture, which is our first of our of the homilies in our tradition the uh, in the book of homilies its the first homily in the first book of homilies, um it basically says okay when you've come up when you've come across a really hard part of scripture the best thing to do there's a couple ways to approach this number one you go to the easier parts and see if those easier parts shed some light on the hard parts because the things that are very explicit are going to and and very, very clear cut are going to shed light on the things that are a little bit harder Um, And number two, that's why God gave us preachers and teachers and pastors is to help us out with this, because, you know, we're supposed to go to school for a long period of time to work on these things. And we're supposed to, as part of our vocation, spend a lot of time working on these things in a way that, um, you know, the, uh, the, the laity aren't necessarily called to do so in their vocation. You know, we're there to help you. So that's one way to handle these. The other thing it says is that that the church is not, it ought not to decree anything against scripture so that besides the same, it ought not to enforce anything to believe is necessary for salvation. Again, we've talked about this this before, right? We can't make any must-believe issues, any salvation issues that are not found in scripture. Scripture gets the final word when it comes to faith and morals. Um... Yeah, so we we can't we can't bind the conscience where scripture has not found the conscience. Um so uh but then it also but it did say that the church does have the power to decree rites and ceremonies and authority over controversies of the faith. Um so what does that mean? Well that means that the church is has the authority to issue an authorized book of common prayer that is within the church's legitimate biblical authority to say, so that we can all be on the same page in worship, this is how you're gonna worship. Um, What that also means is that because we are under the authority of our bishop, um, there is an extent where the bishop has the authority to um, uh, tell us what books of common prayer are authorized in the diocese. If the bishop wanted to, he could say, you know what? We're a diocese of Nigeria. Everybody needs to use the Nigerian Book of Comma Prayer. Y'all 28 guys, sorry, you're out of luck. Now, our bishop is never going to do that, but he has the authority to do that. And then we would have, within the canons of the church, (laughs) the option to say, okay, bishop, this is kind of a line in the sand issue for us. Um, We need to be released from your authority so that we can be under a bishop that has that, that does allow us to worship the way that we've worshiped for 40 years. <laughs> so again, you know, the, and, and, and those things would be worked out within the proper sphere of authorities of the church. Um, it, all that to say is that as much as I love our 1928 Book of Common Prayer, it did not come down from Sinai and it is within the authority of the church to, to issue um, rites and ceremonies so long as they're not contrary to the word of God. Uh, one of the objections that our bishop has to the American 1979 is that he does believe that there are some things in there that are contrary to the Word of God. Um, you'd have to talk to him for a list of that. Um, those sorts of things. Um, I, I, you know, I, I, I would not myself enjoy <laughs> that that particular book of Common Prayer because to me, I see it more as um, generic enough to allow things that are. That are contrary <laughs> rather than it being explicitly contrary to itself. It kind of just opens the door a little too wide, in my opinion. Plus, it's just not as good, um, in my opinion. But um, so it does have, so the church does have the, the power to decree rites or ceremonies. Um, once upon a time, the kind of vestments that we use in our church would not have been allowed in the Anglican church. And that's okay. Um, there are some people that uh, would say, well, the way it was 400 years ago or the way it has to be now. Well, no, that's actually not correct. The church has the authority over right, rights and ceremonies. And so in its authority, the church can permit those older vestments, um, but in their authority, the church could have, could have uh, limited them. You know, so so though that's properly within the authority of the church. Why is that authority there? For the sake of good order. And we are a church of order. We don't let every man do what he wants to do. We are not um, the book of judges. There was no king, and every man did what he what what he what he wanted to or what his own heart, however that goes. Um, I'm totally butchering the quote., uh, so that's that. Um how about authority and controversies of the faith? Well, that's where those um, councils of the church come into play. Um, the Council of Nicaea was largely formed so that the church could, as a body, settle a controversy of the faith. And the controversy was, does the Holy Scriptures and does what we've received from um, all the people back to the apostles tell us that Jesus is God or is he something less? And the church properly uh, saw the scriptures and said, no, Jesus is God. And when we look at the, the major councils of the church, those are the kinds of things that we that we do see happening. Um, so so that's the authority of the church, but there's also a limited authority. So scripture has the ultimate authority, but the church does have a derivative authority. How about this idea of the church being um, a witness and keeper of holy writ? Well, what that tells us is that Contrary to what sometimes you hear in some churches, the church did not give us scripture. The church is a witness to scripture. In other words, the church um, affirmed the truth of this. The church did not declare it the, the truth. Do you see the difference? Um, the scriptures were not given. It wasn't that, that that there was the church and then the church decided here are the scriptures. But rather the church sought the Lord to, to, to see what is properly the word of God, not we are declaring this the word of God, but we are discerning based on evidence what is the word of God. There's a big difference there. Um, and there were criteria for that, right? So um, like, like, for example, one of the criteria was, was this book written by one of the apostles? That's, that's, that's a major part of the criteria. Another one was, does this book contradict something that's in another place of scripture? And then the third criteria was: Has this book been received by all the churches as being God's word already? You know, so so it's a it's a discernment process rather than a deliberative process. We are not declaring Scripture; we are merely a witness to Scripture and a guardian of Scripture. You know, we 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 are we are to guard the Scripture because we've been entrusted with it, um, and that and that's very important. Because again, what does that mean? Um, if it's not in Scripture, we can't say that it's a must-believe issue. If it's not Scripture, we can't say that your soul is imperiled. If it's not Scripture, we can't say that it binds the conscience. Okay, questions, comments on Article Number Twenty. At this point, okay. If you have some, as you go through, um, you know, don't don't be afraid to. Uh, Unmute and, and uh, bring it up. Um, next, we're gonna go to article number 21. If you look in your book of common prayer in your 1928 American book of common prayer, we see something very funny. It says the 21st of the former articles is omitted because it is partly of a local and civil nature and is provided for as to the remaining parts of it in other articles. <laughs> in other words, the American set of the articles as revised in 1801 uh, is really 38 articles, not 39, <laughs> because 21 has been omitted. But for the sake of the class, let's look at number 21, um, which is of the authority of general counsels. And we're going to see that this really does dovetail on what we just talked about in Article 20. So, this is in the uh, 1571 articles. Um, I'm reading from the uh, uh, 1662 International Edition Book of Common Prayer here. Great edition, by the way. General councils may not be gathered together without the commandment and will of princes. And when they be gathered together, forasmuch as they be an assembly of men, whereof all be not governed with the spirit and word of God, they may err. And sometimes have erred, even in things pertaining unto God. Wherefore, things ordained by them as as necessary to salvation have neither strength nor authority, unless it may be declared that they are taken out of holy scriptures. So then this is talking about the issue of these councils. Could the councils have erred? Yes, yes. Um, do we go into ever go into those councils saying, okay, here's going to be an ecumenical council, um, the whole church is going to agree to this, the Holy Spirit's going to speak? No, it doesn't happen that way. Whether the Holy Spirit has spoken in those councils is something that's usually discerned in retrospect. We look back and we say, yeah, it looks like the Spirit was speaking through this. So we have to test the things that come of these councils. What about this part where it says they cannot be gathered together without the commandment and will of princes? Well, when we look at the the, those original councils of the church, they were called by the emperor. Um, this was in the early days of what we might call Christendom. And the emperor called them together and, and all the bishops came. Now, the emperor did not preside. Constantine did not decide anything at the Council of Nicaea. He called it. Um, he was there, but he made no decisions. The bishops made the decisions, right? Why is this article here? Well, because around the same time that the articles are being written, the Pope is called the Council of Trent. And the Roman Catholic Church kind of changed their two non-general councils um, at some point. And I, I don't know enough about Roman Catholic conciliary history to tell you when that point is. But they basically decided, no, there, there's no emperor to call these anymore. There's no real united Christendom. So the Pope... Has the authority to call an ecumenical council, and to which you know we would probably say, "Well, how can it really be an ecumenical council if it's only one part of the church that's meeting? You know, if it's only the Roman Church, how can it really be ecumenical? You're you're, you're missing four of the historic patriarchies. You're missing a huge part of the West, in, in the in the in the and in uh, when it comes to the Council of Trent, and at the time Rome's response to that would have been well all of you guys are schismatics and heretics so you're not really the church anymore okay that that's that's what we would call begging the question right (laughs) i mean the the answer is implied in the question itself right there is no actual question there (laughs) um so uh the 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 framers of our article said no that's not a legitimate ecumenical council um, we need a civil authority to call it because that's the way it was in the past. Um, is, is that true? I don't know. I mean, we haven't really had an ecumenical council in over a thousand years. So, I mean, it's kind of a moot point, but, but we do know that, um, especially Archbishop Cranmer was trying to get kind of a pan Protestant Council almost like an alternative to Trent, where the Protestant, the various national Protestant churches. Because by this time, you really did have a Church of England. You know, in certain parts of Germany, they were they were Lutherans, but they were very much you know that local local thing. You know, Church of Scotland, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so, Archbishop Cranmer and a few other folks were trying to agitate. And organize um, a pan-Protestant council to work out some of the disagreements. Sadly, that never happened. Um, Instead, what happens is that um, in in one way or another, there's kind of splintering, right? So, you know, you get this the split between the Lutheran and Reformed. Um, You get this split later on between the Calvinists and the Arminians, and all this other stuff that we don't really need to go into. Um, But that's kind of the nature of it but again even a council is subject to the scriptures so when when we look at our ecumenical councils or historic ecumenical councils sometimes you'll find in anglican circles um folks will say we're going to affirm the first four councils and we're not really necessarily sure about five six and seven other folks say, well, we're going to we're going to affirm the first six, but we're not really sure about number seven. Other folks say, well, if you don't affirm the fir- all all four of the seven, then you're not really Catholic. And there's a lot of historical issues behind those different positions, but but basically it boils down to the councils must be subject to Scripture, just like everything else. You know, the, a, a council does not make something. Surely Catholic, only the scriptures make that. Now the councils can affirm um, Catholicity in the face of a particular controversy, but it doesn't necessarily make or break Catholicity. Um, The way that the Anglican Church in North America kind of approaches that issue is they say, we affirm the first four councils, which really deal with the question of who is Jesus. I mean, that's really what they do. And nobody really disagrees with the first four councils, um, oh, there, there there's a few really small churches in the in the east of the world that that don't, and probably the biggest of them that don't affirm all four is the the Egyptians, the Copts. But even then, you know, we're we're talking a good fifteen hundred plus years later. They've kind of made their peace with the rest of the church and realize, okay, we were really kind of talking past each other. But. Um, Pretty much, you know, everybody in the Protestant world, Catholic world, Orthodox world agrees on the first four. Number five and six um, and seven, what the Anglican Church of North America says in their constitution and canons is that we affirm the Christological clarifications of those councils. So in other words, we say there was some really good theological work done that we're going to affirm but there might be some details that we've take issue with for example in number seven which was dealing with the controversy over um, icons um, one of the the canons and anathemas of, of number seven basically said if you don't have a relic in your altar um, you got a problem if you don't venerate the icons you've got a problem to which we would have said, no, that's 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 never been the way we've looked at it in, in the West, um, never. I mean, even those that affirm all seven councils never looked at it that way. So that's why we would, that's why the, the Anglican Church in North America puts it that way. I think that's a good position to take. Um, I, I'm not really sure where the Church of Nigeria is on, on the councils. Um, I've never seen that in documents. But um, the point is, the ultimate point is that the councils are subject to scripture, which, which is, which is why there is, there is an ongoing controversy about number seven, because there are some Christians that would see iconography as a violation of the second commandment. Um, I would say they need to do a little bit of homework on, on that council. It's very widely misunderstood, including our own um, homily on the peril of idolatry in the second book of homilies. Uh, but um but at the same time, some of the way that the East, the Orthodox East approaches iconography, we would never do that. I mean, it's, 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 um, it's, it's a problem. It's problematic in terms of our rites and ceremonies because um, at least in our cultural context, it might be pushing the boundaries of potential idolatry. Um, potentially not necessarily, but potentially, Yeah, you know, I'm not calling the Eastern Orthodox idolaters far from it. Uh, but you know, we, 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 that's not our, that's not our rites and ceremonies, uh, questions on number 21 and whatnot. Oh, well, why is it omitted in the American, American, American articles? Um, we don't have princes, right? It's not an issue. Uh, the thing about the scriptures having the ultimate authority—it's all be, already been addressed a couple times in the articles already. Basically, in the context of a republic, um, the American Church said, "Yeah, this really doesn't apply to our context." Even and, and the theological issues are really addressed other places. Uh, any, 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 any questions comments on number twenty one, Pam? You got to mute yourself. Oh, there um, you go. As we were talking about this, we're just talking about. Um, the protestants were we're not including the romans did not go to these other councils Oh no 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 they they were yeah the first seven councils were before there was there was just one church pretty much Okay I mean um, the the seventh council is 8th century here now okay. the roman church at this point has i think 20 some councils that they consider ecumenical but most of those are post split issue so they're kind of really roman catholic councils but because of the way that they've historically seen ecclesiology, they say, well, this is ecumenical, this is the whole church, because we're the whole church, you know, kind of thing. Um, you know, the most recent being Vatican II in the 1960s, wherein they did roll back some of those harsh statements about other, <laughs> other branches of the church. Um, but yeah, no, no, these, the, the most Protestant churches will agree on the first four councils, almost all churches will agree on the first four. The, ortho, the Eastern Orthodox um, they look at the first seven, and they they call the um, anniversary of the Seventh Council the um, the Triumph of, of Orthodoxy because in their mind that's kind of when the last major controversy was put to rest um, was 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 with the icon issue, um, and, and you know the reason why most Protestants are not necessarily sure about five, six, and seven is because five and six are really super philosophical. And they're and they're very much a particular brand of philosophy that was never really there in the East. They are issues that we never dealt with in the West. And they're really kind of expounding on issues that we already dealt with in number three and four in particular. And then with number seven, um, Yeah, number seven's always had a troubled history in the Western church um, because some of it was translation issues, some of it was understanding issues, um, and some of it was just a, there's a big part of the church that saw iconography as idolatrous. Um, Now, ironically, by the time we get to the Reformation, the Roman Church has done a lot of things with 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 statues and, and other forms of artwork that the yeast would say is idolatrous. <laughs> so um, there was there was a, there was a lot of lot of controversy with this. But no, most most Protestants agree on the first four. You will find a good chunk of Anglicans that insist on on the first seven. Um, you know, Lancelot and Andrews, one of our great Elizabethan era divines. He he summed up the boundaries of the faith this way. He said, we have one canon given to us by God consisting of two testaments. So one canon, two testaments, uh, three creeds, four general councils, five centuries of the fathers and and the, or five centuries of the fathers in those, those writers and doctors and fathers in those periods are really what bounds our faith. So. To a lot of the English divines and our Anglican forebears, they really said, okay, these first five centuries are before we start to see some weird stuff creep into the church. And that doesn't mean that everything that comes afterwards is necessarily corrupt, but we're really going to take our cues from the earliest five centuries of the church. Um, Again, which is one of the reasons why um, historically we've, we've said four, maybe six, Uh, Not so sure about number seven, you know, but some people, some people take the other position. All right. Anybody else? Well, I think um, it is now seven o'clock. It's kind of weird for me to do a fully Zoom class that isn't uh, a full hour, but I'm going to go ahead and stop it here because the next one is going to, well gosh we really should delve into the next one let's do about 15 10 15 minutes on the next one um if you need to pop out pop out that's okay i'll the recording will be up but let's go into number 22 which is of purgatory the romish doctrine concerning purgatory pardons worshiping and adoration as well of images and relics and also invocations of the saints is a fond thing vainly invented and grounded upon no warranty of scripture, but rather repugnant to the word of God. So this follows up on what's going on in number 21. Um, What the the, framers of the articles would say is that these issues, which were very much controversial things at the time of the Reformation, are additions to the faith that we don't see in the first five centuries, we don't see in the earliest councils, we certainly don't see them in scripture, and they're a problem. So let's look at these one by one. So purgatory. Uh, the Roman Catholic doctrine of purgatory basically says that um, if you are a baptized Christian but have not been, are not dying in, um, in, a, in a full state of grace. So in other words, um, you, you're not perfect. Um, that's a bit wide of a way to put it, but we'll, we'll, we'll talk it that way. If you're not already a saint, in your earthly life, you need to be purified during um, after your death. You need to pay the you need to pay the temporal consequences of your sins, so as to purify you and make you ready for heaven. Um, we simply don't find that in scriptures. Um, it's just it's just not there, and. Especially in the Middle Ages, this had turned into an almost hellish um, sort of thing, and it led to the, the um, abuses of indulgences and all this other stuff. Um, you know, was, purgatory is very fiery, you're, you're suffering burning and all this other stuff. Um, but the point is you're getting perfected after death so that you can see God. Uh, the, the way the scriptures speak of it is, is, and this is, this is an analogy that the St. Paul uses, um, you know, we look in the mirror darkly. Um, you might use the analogy. It's kind of like waking up out of a dream when when we, when we die before the Lord. Uh, if you've ever had a very vivid dream, there are going to be some things that make perfect sense when you're in the dream. But when you wake up, you say, golly, that was dumb. Right. Um, and, and, and in the light of reality, um, it just looks silly. It makes no sense, but that's the nature of a dream, right? That seems to be the way it's going to be when it comes to our, our 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 fallen nature, our sinful inclination. One of the reasons why we sin is because we love those things in some way more than we love God. I mean, that's that's just the truth. We the heart, the heart, um, the heart follows what it loves, right? Those loves will not be there when we die. It's going to be like waking up out of a dream. So if there is a sense of purgatory, death itself is that purgation of our sins. That's the way we've looked at it. We can have assurance of our salvation um, without this idea of purgation, post-death purgation. And to modern-day Roman Catholics, purgatory kind of functions similar to assurance of salvation. They say, I know I'm not perfect, but I know that God's going to purify me after death. And so that tells me he loves me. And although it's not going to be pleasant being purified, at least I'm going to eventually get to heaven. Um, that's unfortunate, but but that's a lot healthier than it was at the time the articles were in, right? Um, pardons, um, this idea that... Um, that the church can abuse its authority to the point of damning somebody or, um, giving them special dispensation so that they can go sin without any consequences eternally. Um, you know, basically giving God's authority to the church in a way that was abusive. Um, yeah, it it doesn't work that way. Um, worshiping and adoration, Um, that's going to be really referring to um, changing communion from something that we receive to something that we worship. So uh, the the, the Roman Catholic idea of transubstantiation basically says that since um, if if Jesus is really present in the bread and wine, and that means the bread and wine are Jesus, and therefore they can receive the same worship that we would give to Jesus because they are Jesus. And so again, at the time this was written, it was the, the, the lay faithful encountered the Eucharist more in gazing upon it and worshiping it than they did in eating it, partaking of it. Um, we would affirm that Christ is present in the Eucharist, but we would not affirm that that means that we turn the bread and wine into an object of worship. Um, so that's, that's, that's one of those. You know, the, 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 the Eucharist is there to be partaken of, not to be gazed upon and worshiped. Um, invocation of saints oh let's go relics um, that there's some sort of special power in um, in, in, in relics of the saints uh, relics could be anything from a body part to a, cl- to a piece of clothing to um, a document you know all this other thing and you know th- th- there's there's something we, we, that, that's neat about having parts of those that came before us but they were attributed with special powers in in um, in the medieval church. Um, miracles. And again, if you didn't have a relic in your altar, you weren't a valid altar and you'd have valid Eucharist. Um, and I'm not sure they would go that far, but basically you had to have some sort of relic. And of course what's that leads what does that lead to? Forgeries. You know, a lot of lot of fake relics. Um, you know, a lot of, a lot of the uh, at the time the quip was, yeah. If you put together all the pieces of the True Cross, you'd have, you know, you know, a huge forest worth of worth of crosses rather than one cross, that kind of thing. Um, so it was abused. Um, invocation of saints, uh, making the saints into mediators. You know, praying to the saints. Um, can the saints hear our prayers? Yeah, probably. It seems that's what it looks like in Revelation. That they, that, they, that they they know what's going on. But they're not omniscient. They're not God, you know? They pray for us. I don't know if that means... Uh, let, let me backtrack. Do the saints pray for us? Well, it, Revelation seems to say, yes, they do. Can they hear our prayers? We don't know. You know, we have no clue. Um, and so praying to the saints at at the very best is of setting up a foolish mediator between you and god at the very worst it can become idolatrous um you know we're in san antonio it's not uncommon in some parts of the city for people to say okay if i need to sell my house i'm going to say a prayer to saint joseph and bury his statue upside down in in my yard you get a lot of superstition you know that's that's not piety that's superstition um do we have communion with the saints absolutely you know i i, I trust in my grandparents being before the Lord um, keeping me in their prayers as they, as they serve before the Lord, that's all fine. Um, But, but me saying, you know, Hey, 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 uh, Hey, Abuelita, um, I'm having a rough time and I can't talk to God. Can you go talk to him for me? That's a problem. Yeah. That's, that's what we would say there. Um, So they say it's a, it's a fond thing. And in that, in, in, in 16th century parlance, that means it's a, um, uh, it's it's a it's a thing of your imagination you know vainly vainly invented grounded upon the warranty of scripture but a, but repugnant to the word of god so again this is reinforcing that point that our we we cannot have rites and ceremonies that contra- contrast the word of god we certainly can't have must believe issues that that contradict the word of god you know the word of god is is where is where the, the buck stops and so those things needed to be reformed out of the church is basically what our reformers were saying. And I would agree. that's 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 why yeah, you know, that's why I'm angry. <laughs> and why I'm not Roman Catholic. Okay, questions, comments on that one, and then we'll go ahead and end it. Okay, well, um, we will pick up with number 23 next week then Um, hopefully by then this will be somewhat in person um, and I'll still have the video going for those of y'all that can't join us in person Um, but that's that's the goal and um, I'm still consult consulting uh, Brown's uh, commentary a lot but I realized I was kind of spending a lot a whole lot of time discussing um, background issues that don't necessarily they might be interesting but they're not necessarily going to be edifying in terms of something that can help you help you um so I'm, I'm trying to uh be a little bit more practical with this we'll see how that goes all right god bless y'all and i will see you uh soon one way or the other thanks father um mm.